Welcome to the Compass Podcast, featuring Chris Shandro and the Compass team. We hope this message is just for you. Well, welcome. I am Chris Shandro, the pastor at Compass. Thank you for joining me as always. Maybe like you, when I was little, I played Little League Baseball every summer from when I was in kindergarten all the way through fifth grade. And I loved playing baseball until I joined my middle school baseball team. And that team was made up of sixth, seventh, and eighth graders. And just in case you don't remember middle school, there are significant physical differences between a sixth grader and an eighth grader. Now, I was a small kid, and these older kids were just huge and hairy. And when they threw the ball, it was at speeds that I had never seen before in the games that I had played with kids who were my own age. And there was this one game where it was my turn at bat when I was in sixth grade. I was 11 years old in sixth grade, first year of middle school, and I still looked like a little girl, honestly. And I stepped up to the plate and I squared up with my bat over my shoulder. And the first pitch came, and I swear, it went by so fast that I barely saw it. The next pitch came and I swung, but I never even had a chance. So I stepped up for that third pitch because I was determined that I was not gonna strike out. And I leaned in and I looked right at that gargantuan eighth grade pitcher with all of his muscles and his zits and his patchy adolescent mustache. And he looked at me and he wound up and he threw it as hard and as fast as he could right into my shoulder. And for the record, at 11 years old, getting hit by a fastball from a 14 year old who looked like he was on steroids, it was like getting kicked by a horse. I swear, I could, I could feel my soul leave my body. I could hardly move my arm after that and I had this massive bruise for weeks. But the physical stuff, it actually wasn't the worst part because after I got hit, baseball changed for me. Whenever I got up to bat after that, all I could think about was getting hit again. And what used to be fun, it now felt dangerous. Before, I felt like I was gonna hit a home run every time. But now every time I was at bat, I thought I was gonna die. And I started to doubt whether I wanted to even play baseball anymore because I had this new uncertainty about whether or not it was even safe. And the thing is that no matter how certain we are about life, sometimes things happen that cause us to doubt and question if we're right about it. I mean, we ask ourselves, did I pick the right job? Am I dating the right person? Did I go to the right college? I mean, there are times when our certainty about life is replaced with doubt. And while this may not be a big deal when it just means you don't play junior high baseball anymore, what about the areas of life where having certainty is a bigger deal? Like in areas of religion and faith. What do we do when something happens that introduces uncertainty about God? And this isn't an academic question because right now, there are thousands and thousands of Christians walking away from faith because they have doubt. They have doubt caused by the big issues that are facing the world. They have doubt about the Bible. They have doubt about how many in the evangelical church are responding to the big issues of our day. And some of those people may be you have walked away because a crisis hit that their faith couldn't stand up to. And for many of them, faith in Jesus, it used to be the most secure part of their lives, but then a fastball hit them in the shoulder 
and it introduced doubt and uncertainty that led them to walk away from the game entirely. So what do we do when we have doubts about God? Should we follow all of our doubt down the rabbit hole to wherever it leads? Uh, Should we cut doubt off like a cancer and just choose to blindly believe what we've been told and not look there? Is there room for doubt in the life of a Christian? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks in this new message series called Uncertainty. Because in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus deals with uncertainty and doubt and with what happens when God doesn't meet our expectations. And all of this starts with Jesus's cousin, John the Baptist. And we're going to start reading in Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. It says this, John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all the things the Messiah was doing. So he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? So what I'd like to do is I'd like to stick a pin in this verse and come back to it. Because if we're going to understand the story and everything that's happening here, we need to understand the players. So so first, who is John the Baptist and what was his deal? Well, John was Jesus's cousin And he was actually a a pretty well-known religious leader himself. I mean, let's go back to Matthew chapter 3 to get some background on John. And in verse 1, it says, In those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. His message was, Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. John's clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. People from Jerusalem and from all over Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see him and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. Now, John was a pretty well-known, kind of a famous religious leader back in the first century. John was a teacher who personally saw it as his mission to prepare the way for the coming Messiah, who was this prophesied savior of the Jewish people who was going to come and free them from Roman rule and then become their king. John called people to repent and turn to God, and then he baptized them as a symbol of this commitment to this soon coming Messiah. And the people saw John as a prophet Now, they partly saw John as a prophet because he did weird things that the Old Testament prophets did. Things like dressing in camel hair, eating bugs, and living in the wilderness. I mean, these were all the types of atypical behaviors that prophets were known for engaging in. So John embraced this lifestyle of prophetic self-denial. But people also thought that John was a prophet because of the things that he said. And how he said them. I mean, for example, in Matthew 3.10, John said that even now the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. Prophets were known for using this, you know, harsh, judgmental language. In fact, back then, prophets weren't primarily known as people who could tell the future. Prophets were people who spoke God's truth to power. They were men and women who challenged uh, the powerful people, the powerful systems and structures of the day, 
when those people and systems and structures had turned from God and were sinning in ways that were hurting people. And prophets often spoke of the judgment coming as a result of that sin, just like John did. I mean, here's more of John's kind of prophetic messianic vibe in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. John said, I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. But someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not worthy even to be his slave and carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. So you can see here again, John is using both prophetic language of judgment, burning, but he's also using language of a coming Messiah. John was a teacher and a prophet whose mission was to prepare prepare people for the coming of a savior who he thought was going to come with the fiery judgment of God to violently burn away their pagan Roman oppressors and then lead Israel into a new and godly future. And John believed that Jesus was that Messiah. I mean, look at what happened in in Matthew 3.13. Then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to talk him out of it. I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you. Now, all of this background is really important. So I want you to keep it in mind as I take you back to the beginning of our story in Matthew chapter 11. So let me read this to you again. John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all the things the Messiah was doing. So he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the Messiah we've been expecting? Or should we keep looking for someone else. Question's different now, isn't it? Because when we look at the question now, knowing what we know about John, what he taught, what he believed, we see, we see something new from him. And we see doubt. In Matthew chapter 3, John saw himself as the prophet who would announce the Messiah, and he was certain that Jesus was that man. So why do we find him eight chapters later, asking if Jesus really is the guy. Why was John now doubting what he'd been so certain about before? Well, John got hit by a fastball. He was in prison. Look at this in Matthew 14, 3 through 5. John's story unfolds. For Herod had arrested and imprisoned John as a favor to his wife Herodias, the former wife of Herod's brother Philip. John had been telling Herod, it's against God's law for you to marry her. And so Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of a riot because all the people believed John was a prophet. So John did what prophets do. He criticized Herod. And now Herod was this, he was the king of Israel, but he was a Roman puppet king installed by Rome. And John criticized Herod because he followed Rome instead of following God. And Herod did not like being publicly criticized or having the people stirred up into what could potentially become a rebellion. And so Herod had John arrested and put in prison. So now, let's look at all of this from John's perspective. Think about what John would have expected. John was certain that he was called to be the prophet who was going to usher in the Messiah. John was certain that this Messiah was going to come in judgment of the wicked raining fire to burn up the pagans and those who rejected God. 
John was certain that this Messiah was Jesus. And he was probably certain as well that when he baptized Jesus, that this new kingdom, this new messianic kingdom was going to come into force pretty quickly. But then things didn't happen the way that John expected. Because Jesus didn't ride into Jerusalem immediately with an army. In fact, Jesus went off by himself into the desert for 40 days to fast and pray. Jesus didn't say, defeat your enemies. He said, love them. Jesus didn't say, rebel against Roman soldiers. He said that if a Roman soldier asks you to carry their gear for one mile, carry it for two. And maybe worst of all, Jesus didn't bring judgment. Instead, he hung out with sinners. He didn't fast and deny himself like a prophet. Jesus went to parties where he ate and drank. In fact, Jesus had a reputation as a glutton and a drunkard among people whose religion demanded self-denial. And to top it all off, when John was arrested and imprisoned for doing the right thing, Jesus didn't demand his freedom. He didn't break John out. John ended up in the last place he thought he would be after the coming of this new king. And because of all of that, John's certainty turned to doubt. And he sent his followers to ask Jesus, are you really the Messiah we've been waiting for? Or do we need to just look for someone else? Because this is not what I expected. Well, let's look at how Jesus responded in Matthew 11, verse 4. Jesus told them, Go back to John and tell him what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And he added, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. It's interesting when we read this to think about what Jesus didn't say in response. I mean, Jesus didn't say, how dare you doubt me, John? Or, or who do you think you are to question my authority? Jesus didn't condemn John for his doubt or reject him as unworthy because of his uncertainty. He, he didn't even say, yeah, I am the Messiah. Arguing that fact from the Jewish scriptures to prove it is true. Rather, Jesus said, if you want to know, look at what I'm doing. Look at what's happening and then decide for yourself. Because if you do, you'll realize that the people who are being blessed are the ones who are receiving me. Those who aren't offended by me are put off because they had different, different expectations. I mean, Jesus said, if you have doubt, just look at what I've done. So as I wrap up today, I want to point out three quick things that we can learn from John's doubt and from Jesus's response. And the first thing I want you to see is that doubt is normal in a life of faith. It happened to people in the Bible. It's happened to great Christians throughout history. And it will happen to you. I mean, look at some of these examples. John Calvin was one of the leaders of the Protestant Reformation of the 1500s. And he said, he said, Surely while we teach that faith ought to be certain and assured, we cannot imagine any certainty that is not tinged with doubt or any assurance that's not assailed by some anxiety. Mother Teresa, she wrestled with doubt a lot. And she wrote this about what she was feeling. She said, 
She felt such deep longing for God and repulsed, empty, no faith, no love, no zeal. Saving souls holds no attraction. Heaven means nothing. Pray for me, please, that I keep smiling at him in spite of everything. That's Mother Teresa. Billy Graham wrote this about his doubts about the Bible, saying that there are many things in this book I do not understand. There are many problems with it for which I have no solution. There are many seeming contradictions. There are some areas in it that do not seem to correlate with modern science. That was Billy Graham. And these are all people who many Christians throughout history have looked up to as spiritual giants. And all of them struggled with the same doubts that you and I have. Because doubt is normal in a life of faith. The second thing I want you to know is that God is not afraid of your doubt. Just because John the Baptist doubted, it didn't mean that his faith was weak or lost. It just meant that he was human. And Jesus didn't condemn him for it. Jesus didn't even seem surprised or upset by it. In fact, he said nothing to correct John for his uncertainty at all. And that's because God can handle your doubt. In fact, doubt is part of the process of growing in your faith. Pope Francis even equated doubt to trusting God. And he put it this way. He said, if one has the answers to all the questions, that is proof that God is not with him. It means that he is a false prophet using religion for himself. The great leaders of the people of God, like Moses, have always left room for doubt. You must leave room for the Lord not for our certainties. We must be humble. And then the final thing that I want you to know is that to deal with doubt, just look at what Jesus has done. Jesus' response to John's doubt was to say, just look at what has happened and look at what is happening now. Just because life hit you with a fastball that caused uncertainty, it doesn't mean that all the things that you've seen God do in your life and in the lives of others aren't true. I mean, sometimes there are no simple answers to the questions that we have. I mean, when John's disciples asked Jesus if he, he was the Messiah, Jesus could have just said, yep, but he didn't. Because sometimes when it comes to issues of faith, simple answers won't work. Sometimes we need to work things out to wrestle with them in order for our faith to come out stronger on the other side. And when you are struggling with doubt, do this. Write down the good things that God has done in your life. Write down the things you know that he's done in the lives of people you know. And then looking at those things, ask yourself, in spite of my doubts, what does my experience with God say about who he is and about what's true? The writer Anne Lamott said this. She said, the opposite of faith is not doubt, but certainty. Certainty is missing the point entirely. Faith includes noticing the mess, the emptiness and discomfort, and letting it be there until some light returns. And maybe it's time for us to let go of our quest for certainty and embrace the Jesus that can only be found in the uncertainty. Because remember, doubt is normal in a life of faith, and God can handle it. And when doubt crashes down on you, you need to do what Jesus said. 
and look at what he has done and what he is still doing in your life. So again, when you're struggling with doubt and uncertainty, practice this. Write down the things that God has done in your life and the things that you've seen him do in the lives of others. And let those things be an anchor for your soul as you wrestle with the doubt and uncertainty because God's not afraid of those things. He's here and he's there for you to walk you through whatever you are going through, whatever fastball life has thrown your way. He will be faithful. So don't let go and don't be afraid because he is with you. I'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us at Compass. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any questions about Compass or this message, contact us at our website, www.compassbn.com.